This morning, moving on, we've got two more weeks to get through this series that we're doing on why it is we do the things that we do when we come to church. Today, how to listen to a sermon. All right, I have to admit right off the front, this feels a little bit self-serving for me, doesn't it? How are you supposed to listen to a minister like me present a sermon when I preach it? But at the same time, this feels a little odd. I'm giving you a sermon about how to listen to a sermon. It, I mean, what if it would be like if you didn't know how to read, and so the way I would teach you to read is by giving you a book about reading? I mean, what, what good would that do? So I'm, I'll try my best to be helpful here today in how it is that we listen to this thing that we do every Sunday that we call a sermon. You know, for, for over a thousand years as the church first existed after the time of Jesus, the sermon was not the central point in the, in the worship service. In fact, for a large part of that time, there was no sermon at all. For, for most of the church's existence from the time of the New Testament, it was the sacrament that was the center of worship. Every week you would take the sacrament, communion. In the Roman Catholic Church, they call that the Mass, and, and they still do that as the center of their worship time. It wasn't until the Protestant reformers came along in the 16th century, guys like, you know, Martin Luther and John Calvin, it wasn't until that time that all of a sudden a new focus came to the center of worship. This thing that we call preaching. Preaching a sermon. And so it's been about 500 years out of the 2,000 plus years of, of the church in existence that, that we've had this thing that we call preaching the sermon as sort of the center point of what we do when we come to church, right? Every Sunday in every church, there's a minister who opens the Bible, reads a passage, and then preaches on that passage. So we do that week in and week out, but, but what is it that we're coming here to actually get from that? What are we taking from this time when a minister talks for a half an hour about the Bible? You see, I think there's such a variety out there that, that maybe we all land in different places on that question, don't we? I mean, I, I try my best to keep sermons under a half an hour. But, I mean, there are some churches where 10-minute homily is what you get. There are other churches where a minister can go 45 minutes or longer, right? I try to keep sermons to where I, I give you one key takeaway, right? One idea that you can walk out of here with. But, you know, there's the classic model out there, the three-point sermon. You've got to have three things to walk out with. Or there are some ministers who give you an entire catalog of notes out of one message of things to take away. There's, there just doesn't seem to be one agreed-upon way that this whole thing that we call the sermon, the message, is supposed to be, how it's supposed to go. And it comes in different ways, too. I, I remember in my last church, there was a, a gentleman in my last church who grew up in a, a rather strict Baptist home and went to a Baptist church where the minister there, I'm, I'm guessing just by his stories, I mean, was one of those fire and brimstone kind of preachers, if you're familiar with that term, right? Very authoritarian when it comes to how to use the Bible. Anyways, he, he left church for a long time. Right? When he grew up and grew out of that church, he, went, he walked away from it. Found his way back into our church over there in Denver because, well, he met some people and they were friendly. So he made some friendships and connections and came in and came back into church. But 
But every once in a while, when I would chat with him and, and ask about, you know, hey, how are you, how are you doing? How are you taking the message? And, and he would offer, I think, something of where he came from when he would say, you know, I think the messages should have less Bible. There's too much Bible in your messages. So I ask a little further, tell me about that. What should we have instead of so much Bible in a message? Well, I think a sermon should just be stories. You know, inspiring stories so that, so that we feel good and that we're happy. That's what a message should be. That's what the sermon should be about. Just tell stories that make us feel good, that inspire us. Like that. Someone who comes in with some expectation of what's supposed to happen during that time. There are others, though, too. I, I remember another person in my church there who, uh, in the daily commute, would listen to podcasts back and forth. And podcasts, particularly of TED Talks, if you've heard of TED Talks, I mean, it's been around for a while. TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design. It, it's a conference that began in Vancouver, um, British Columbia, Canada, and, and has grown and spread so that TED conferences take place all over now. And, and they bring in these experts who give ideas, right? They, they give knowledge. So they, they give this speech, this presentation that, that informs the audience of, of something new, something enlightening, that they pick up something they didn't know before. So we live in a world where that exists on the internet and it's out there and, and then you've got people who come into church then looking for that. Give me something new. Give me some enlightenment. Teach me something I didn't know before. Right? Um, give me some kind of new knowledge here because the internet is full of that kind of a thing. Is that what's happening when we come into a sermon? That, that we're learning something new. That we're gaining some new enlightenment, some new knowledge. There doesn't seem to be any agreed-upon standard for that, does there? Several years ago, I, I had opportunity to spend one year in a grant-supported group where I gathered once a month with other ministers, and we would examine and study this thing that we call preaching, trying to develop all the angles of, of what it is that we do when we come and we preach, and how it's done, and how people receive it. So we, we looked at that rather closely, and Somewhere along the way through that year, all of us who were in that group, all the ministers that were gathered there, we had to acknowledge something. We had to admit something, that we often, ministers, put pressure on ourselves. Now, maybe it's pressure that we receive, but we kind of felt like, you know, it, it's imagined. I don't think people actually put this pressure on us, but we, we feel like we put this pressure on ourselves, that because of... YouTube and podcasts and TikTok and, and everything out there where all of these people are giving these, some of these people, really awesome talks, really incredible, phenomenal speeches that everyone here has access to. It's right at your fingertips on the internet. We felt the pressure that said, you know what? It feels like on a Sunday morning, I've got to knock one out of the park every single week. Because how can I compete with everything else that's out there on the internet unless I can step up and hit a home run at every single at-bat? But if you follow baseball at all, you know that never happens. There's never been a baseball player who hits home run every single at-bat. It doesn't take place. 
doesn't work that way. But we imagine this pressure to do that. We imagine that we have to build that in, that every week I've, I've got to tell stories that are inspirational to everyone. And I've got to build in some new learning knowledge that, that's new for everyone. And it just doesn't work that way. I can't knock it out of the park every single Sunday. No minister can. So what are we doing here then? What are we listening for in this time when we gather? We sing songs, we pray, we confess, we do all of those parts of worship, and then we listen to a minister. What are we listening for? Heartwarming stories that make us feel good and inspired? Enlightenment that comes by new knowledge, something new that I've learned? How are we taking this in every week when we listen to this? You know, even though I can't hit a home run every single at-bat, ball teams don't win games that way either because they don't hit home runs every single at-bat. In, in fact, you look at the ball team, the baseball teams who win, and, and it's the ones who have the regular, consistent pattern of even play that do all the little things right that makes the victory, Right? It's the batter who can step up and just hit a single. And then the next batter takes a walk and advances. The next batter lays down the bunt, advances the runners. The next batter hits a sacrifice. The tag up scores. You get a point on the board. All those little things you do day after day, game after game, inning after inning, those things add up for the win. A consistent pattern of working through all the little things that collectively make a difference. Consider with me then how this thing that we call listening to the sermon fits in that, a pattern. Today I'm going to be giving a passage here that comes from Ecclesiastes. So this comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the first 10 verses, talking about patterns. This is what it says there. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was already here, long ago. It was here before our time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Patterns. Rhythm. 
that, that there's something in this passage that the writer of Ecclesiastes brings to us that starts this whole book of Ecclesiastes by calling out the pattern, the rhythm. Now, you may say, all right, I've, I've spent this time setting up the sermon, and then the very first thing in the passage that I read is meaningless, right? <laughs> there's no point. There's no meaning here, but let, let's work some of that out, right? So even though in your English Bibles, in the NIV, it says meaningless, if, if you're familiar with the old King James, it used vanity, right? Vanity of vanities, it would say, but it comes from the Hebrew word havel. Havel, which translates as meaningless, actually means, it literally means breath, a breath, in the sense of something that's momentary, it's fleeting, it's so small and insignificant. That's the nuance of that word. And I like the word momentary better, because it better captures what the author, what Solomon, who writes Ecclesiastes here, it better captures what he's getting at. That our lives are so incredibly momentary so fleeting that we in that grand scheme of all of creation are rather insignificant compared to the rhythm and the pattern of the world that just keeps going and going and going. In verse 8, it says, all things are wearisome. That's the Hebrew word, yagea, which, which translates as wearisome, but it literally means full of work. I don't think wearisome really captures that, right? In some context it can be translated that way but this context is not talking about that it's not that the world is weary from this repeated pattern that goes on over and over again it's that it keeps going right full of work or keeps on working it keeps on going that's the point that the author of ecclesiastes is making that we you and i are born and live such a brief moment into this world which keeps on spinning keeps on going, and does so by a faithful and reliable pattern that God, our creator, built into it. Built his world to work in ways that have a rhythm, a pattern, something that keeps going and going. That is the world to which we were born, to which we were created by God. And so, follow me on this then, so you and I then are made as people, made by God, to exist within a pattern, a rhythm. That you and I were made by God as a part of his creation, his creation, which the author of Ecclesiastes notes, a creation that has an ongoing rhythm and a pattern that just keeps going and going, and God creates us as part of that creation, that maybe you and I somehow fit a pattern, a rhythm, something that keeps going and going. So we look at that. Look at how we exist within that, within a pattern and rhythm of the world. We don't like that very much. I mean, follow me on this, right? When it comes to patterns and rhythms that keep going and going. I go to the doctor and the doctor says, Tom, you could actually shed a few pounds and get in shape. All right. I go home that day. I eat a salad for lunch once, one day. I do two sit-ups that day, one day. The next week I get up and 
I haven't lost a single pound. I ate a salad. So what's up? Why do I still weigh the same? And I did two sit-ups. I'm supposed to have this ripped six-pack ab now. What's up? It's not the one, is it? I can't eat one salad and do two sit-ups and expect to find the result that I'm looking for. It's got to be a pattern, a rhythm. That's what brings the result, right? I've got to find the pattern and the rhythm of eating healthy regularly and doing exercise regularly, and those things build up collectively over time to bring the result that I'm looking for. But we don't like that, do we? I mean, think of everything that's out there. A weight loss clinic or weight loss surgery. Can't I just get a surgery, do one thing, and then boom, I'm there. Step up, hit the home run, game over. Or can't I just get some kind of a vitamin steroid supplement and boom, I'm there. I'm in shape. Can't I just do the one thing and make it happen that way? Receive the instant results that I want? Why do I have to have this repeated pattern and rhythm that goes over and over again? You know that's out there, right? That there are people in the world trying to sell that to us. You don't need the pattern and the rhythm. You can just do the one thing and get the results you want right away. But I think we know better somewhere inside. I, th- I think we know better that, no, it takes the pattern and the rhythm consistently repeated over time to bring the result that I'm really looking for. The author here of Ecclesiastes is telling us, you know what, our spiritual lives fit that. It fits that. That although there may be those times and places where you think, if I just go to that one conference and do that one thing, or if I just say that one prayer, that gets me where I need to be on level with God, or if I just hear that, that one message that brings my life of discipleship right there where it needs to be. Instant results. But the author of Ecclesiastes starts out this book about how it is that we exist in God's world by noting particularly, mm, there's a pattern to the world, there's a rhythm to the world, and you and I, created by God within those patterns and rhythms that come to us by God's creation. So then could it be that the collective effect of these patterns and rhythms, which taken all together over time, build up to produce the result that we're seeking? You catch that? The collective effect of these patterns and rhythms taken all together over time build up to produce the result that we are seeking. So you come here today and you listen to a sermon. And maybe we ask ourselves, you know, what do I get out of this today? Was I enlightened today? Was I inspired today? Did I learn anything new today? Maybe we ask the question, what did I get out of this sermon today? When perhaps the better question might be, how does this sermon today fit the rhythm of sermons I consistently hear over time. Now, there may be something inspiring today. There may be something new today that you learn. 
But the point here is that what you receive here today when you come to hear a minister preach fits together with a rhythm of sermons that you collectively hear over time. That what it is that I bring and do here today fits together with what you heard last week and the week before and the week before and with next week and the week after and the week after. That all of those things consistently received over time build into a rhythm and a pattern. That God created our souls to find flourishing life within a consistent, repeated pattern and rhythm. So, we show up every week, we listen to a minister preach. It's not meant to stand alone by itself. It's not that I have to hit a home run today. A single is fine. Because you know what? Next week there will be another one. And the next week after that there will be another one. And after that there will be another one. The collective pattern over time. It's not one salad and you're in shape. It's not one sit-up and you're strong. But it's the pattern, right? It's the rhythm of bringing those things. So what goes on here? thing that we call a message, right? How does this work together for something that we bring? Let, let me point out what it says here in verse 10. In verse 10 of what we read today, is there anything of which anyone can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. With that, I can say, you know what? I don't have anything new to say. I'll, I'll just say that right up front. The gospel message has been around for 2,000 years, and it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Now, the world is always changing, so the way we apply that gospel message to our lives and to our world, that's always changing. But the message itself, the thing that's preached, that, that has stayed the same. And I spend hours every single week going through commentaries, that I don't bring any fresh new ideas that I make on my own here. Those are all ideas I pick up from other people in other commentaries. And commentaries filled with footnotes and citations of other authors in other places. It's all been said before. Right? The, the, there's not anything new to the gospel message. But we say it over and over again. We show up every week to listen to this minister preach something that I say over and over again, right? I, I'm talking about the grace of Jesus every single week, and you heard it last week and the week before, and you'll hear it today, and you'll hear it next week and the week after. And Well, I mean, imagine if you were a student in school and you show up for math class, and the teacher says, today we're going to learn how to add fractions. And then the next day you go, and today we're going to learn how to add fractions. And the next day, today we're going to learn how to add fractions. I get it already. You've taught me that. I've learned it. Move on. But, but no, it, what we do here in church, you're, you're showing up every week to hear the same thing over and over again. You repeat that. So, how does that come to us? How does that fit? Right? What is it that we're really listening to? What are we taking from this? All right, let me workshop a little bit of this. So I've talked about how this fits into a rhythm and a pattern. So, so consider this, all right? Consider how it is that, that this collective pattern works. Two weeks ago, I talked about how to read the Bible. If anyone was here, you remember that? We have to dig deep for that one. It was two weeks ago. 
In fact, two weeks ago when I talked about how to read the Bible, the point I made was, you know what, there are two questions that we should ask of every passage. Is that starting to ring a few bells? Yeah. Two questions to ask of every passage. One, what's the problem? Two, how does God show up? Remember that now? Yep. Every passage that you open and you read, look for those two things. What's the problem? Where's the sin, the brokenness, the struggle? And how does God show up? What does God do? Where's God acting in that? Every passage, I said, look for that. All right, Ecclesiastes is a tough book. It's a little difficult. So maybe this isn't immediately evident when you look at it, right? But in in the 10 verses that we read here today, what's the problem? Comes right away at the beginning. The problem is we're here so briefly and momentarily. The problem is that even though God created Adam and Eve for eternal life, we messed it up. And now we're here for just this little brief moment that's so fleeting and seemingly so insignificant. God made us for eternity, but instead we chose death. That's the problem as it comes in that passage. Now then, where does God show up? In the passage we read today, where does God show up? Again, this might be a little harder to pull through that. God shows up because God created a world that exists in a pattern, in a rhythm, into which he created us to exist within that same pattern and rhythm. God shows up to invite us to be part of his pattern and rhythm of creation. I'm going to step just a little bit outside of this passage and draw some of these ideas together. Jesus shows up, Jesus comes to redeem us in a pattern of grace. Right? He comes to extend his grace to us and invites us to be a part of that rhythm of grace that he extends. You remember last week? Anyone here last week? We talked about holiness, the grammar of Hebrews 10. Do you remember that from last week? That holiness is something that comes to us that has already been fulfilled in Christ. Right? We, we saw that from Hebrews 10. Christ died once and for all. But we also noted that how that holiness which has come to us by that once, one sacrifice for all has an effect that keeps on going. It happened, but the effects of that still continue on into the present. This holiness that we have been given through the sacrifice of Christ is something that continues to bear fruit in the lives that we live. And that is the pattern, the rhythm of grace as it comes to us. Not once, not one prayer and you're done. Not one sermon and you've nailed it. But collectively, the collective effect of engaging this pattern and rhythm consistently over time builds to make a difference for what we're looking for. We find that coming to us in the way God reveals himself to us. We come here each week to hear that in this sermon, this message, that reminder of who we are, that God has redeemed us, forgiven us. Because here's what happens, right? You leave this place today, 
you leave here today and you go into a world that tries to tell you the exact opposite of that, right? You go from this place into a world where you are told over and over again, you know what, what I do is not enough. I'm not good enough. I've got to do better. You go into a world that tells you, you know what, you fail and you don't reach the standard of perfection that's out there. You go into a world which tells us, a world that tells us your response to that ought to be take revenge before someone seeks revenge on you. That's what the world says. The world says take control until some, before someone else takes control of you. Don't we see that happening in our world outside every single day? You see it on the news, you read about it in the papers. A world which says, yep, we're messed up people. And the way that I respond to that mess is, you know what, I'm going to get you before you get me. I'm going to take charge of you before you take charge of me. That's what our world tells us day after day. So, so we come in here week after week after week to be reminded again, to be grounded again, to be anchored again in the truth that we live as people who are loved by God. Yes, what we do is not enough. We're not perfect. We know that. But God says, and we hear it every week when we come here, God says, I love you unconditionally, just the way you are. We live in a world that says, you know what, you mess up and you fail. And we come before God and we acknowledge that. We do mess up and we do fail. But God says, and we hear it every week, you are forgiven. We come to this place in a world that tells us, take revenge, take control, grab onto those things. But then we come here to be reminded that, no, We live in a world in which, because we're loved, because we're forgiven, we live in a pattern and a rhythm of grace and forgiveness that bears the fruit of holiness. We do that reminder every single week that we come in here to do that. So I've talked a little bit about baseball. I I had the opportunity this week to go watch a baseball game, spend a day in Chicago, because I still follow the Rockies, and all right, they didn't win. It wasn't one of those great home run kind of days for that, but, but here's a little something about the Rockies. Did you know that the Rockies have the best home record in all of Major League Baseball right now? They are, they are 42 and 12 at Coors Field in Denver. That was a little far for me to drive for a day this week the best in all of baseball. And also, they have the most walk-off wins in all of baseball. Twelve games this year so far have been walk-off wins. Maybe that's not a great thing, because it tells you that when they win, they barely win, right? But still, that's fun. That's exciting. That's an exciting and fun way to see a baseball game end with the walk-off. Who wouldn't want to see that? Here's the other statistic about the Rockies. They have the most away losses of any other team in Major League Baseball. Their record on the road is 16 and 48. 
So when they leave Coors Field, don't expect to see them win. Because even though, you know what, the walk-offs are awesome, I love to see the game end that way, it's not what will get you to the World Series, is it? The, the Grand Slam home run doesn't get you to the World Series. The one prayer that you say by itself won't get you there. The one sermon that you hear by itself won't get you there. But collectively, over time, these things build up, right? The cumulative effect of hearing the gospel preached over and over again anchors you in a rhythm of grace, which, first of all, nurtures your soul so that God's redemptive work may flourish in your life. We do this again and again because that repeated pattern of being reminded that you are loved unconditionally and you are forgiven builds within us a rhythm of grace to nurture our souls so God's redemptive work can flourish in the lives that we live. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the way that you reveal yourself. And Lord, we, uh, we confess and we acknowledge that, that we look for the instant results of the one-time quick fix. But Lord, remind us again that pattern, that rhythm of grace that you have built into our world. Lord, ground us in that. Anchor us in that so that we may take that reminder today of your grace added together with the reminders that we've received last week and the week before, next week and the week after, that you may nourish our souls so that we may flourish within your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.